This is really part two of uh, this part of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18 that we saw last week. Uh, Really the the call to see uh, the Father's jealous, passionate love for his children that he will not uh, see any one of his little ones perish. And that flows now into uh, us uh, treating one another as God's children in the same way that the Father treats us. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is quite a, an important topic, the topic of forgiveness and reconciliation. And uh, we've actually uh, we've put together a little booklet. Uh, this is... Uh, I think about four or five studies that I'd done a couple of years ago in another setting, uh, exploring uh, much more deeply the whole matter of uh, being forgiven and forgiving. Uh, so uh, some of what I share this morning will be uh, what's in there, but there's a lot more in there that we won't have time to look at this morning. So please feel free to take one of these um, at the end of the service. But Jesus rarely gives a very uh, methodological instruction, a step-by-step process in his teaching. Uh, normally he, he gives the, the general principles. But in this area of forgiveness, he's very precise. If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount... here in a moment. In the Sermon on the Mount a few weeks ago we saw the, the call to, uh, to be forgiven by your brother or sister. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, you've sinned against them. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to, with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So, so quite detailed instructions there about making sure I am reconciled to my brother or sister against whom I have sinned. Uh, but also very precise instructions here about offering forgiveness to others. Last week I, I said how this chapter in this block of Jesus' teaching, it is about the church. Jesus is anticipating the day when his disciples will be living in and leading the community of the church. It's only one of two places in the whole of the Gospels where the word church is used. And it's really the only place where Jesus gives very specific instruction about how things are to be done in the church. There are hundreds, probably thousands of topics he could have taught on about church life. And maybe we think sometimes things would be a lot easier if we have uh, a lot more 
clear, detailed instructions from Jesus himself about how to do things in church, things like music or the use of money or how long the sermon should be. But what does he teach on? He teaches on forgiveness. And I think there are two reasons for this. One a theological reason and one a practical reason. Firstly, forgiveness is at the heart of the Gospel. Without forgiveness, we have no Gospel. God in Christ forgave you in Ephesians 4.32. It's the sweetest phrase in all of salvation history. And it's the foundation of what Paul says just before it. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If ever someone asked you to sum up in a single phrase the heart of the Christian faith, it would be quite sufficient to say God forgives us in Christ and in Christ he sets us free to forgive. So Jesus knew, in fact it was Jesus' plan that the church stands or falls on its standing firm on the gospel of forgiveness, the message of forgiveness and on its members' faithful practice of forgiveness. Secondly, in the practical sense, Jesus knew that repentance and forgiveness would probably be the Christian virtue with which we struggle the most. How much of our grief and struggles in life are connected to interpersonal issues, broken relationships, personality clashes, malice, envy, pride, boasting, resentment, all have something to do with how we are relating to others. And I suspect that if we sat down and analysed our interpersonal problems, we would conclude that actually the matter of forgiveness is so often at the root of it, in one party or both parties' part. Consider this scenario. I find that a brother or sister has a way of speaking that grates on me. And so I start to feel resentful towards them for making me feel annoyed. I then begin to interpret their words and their actions as if either their own faith is deficient or as if they're deliberately saying things with the intention of getting at me. And so in assuming the worst of my brother or sister, I hold unforgiveness towards them, maybe even for something they haven't actually done. And so I now become guilty of bearing false witness against my neighbour. And then the guilt of my own sin in doing that then compounds my desire to be seen as more righteous than them. Now all of this might be going on secretly within my own heart, but inevitably it will impact on my relationship with that person. It will hinder fellowship. It will prevent me from actually welcoming them as Christ has welcomed me. It will actually prevent me from putting into practice this second half of Matthew 18. 
The matter of unforgiveness might start on a personal, even private level, but it has implications for the community of the church. Two people who are united in Christ to one another are also united to all the other members of the church. So a division between two individuals is in effect a division in the body. So Jesus knew what kind of tangled webs we would weave as we wrestle with the call to forgive. And so he very graciously, he preempted this with this very precise teaching. Verses 15 to 17 uh, give us, uh, we could say, four steps. But there's really, there's really a preliminary step which we saw last week. That step of receiving one another as brothers and sisters. Seeing one another as joint heirs of eternal life. Making it our ambition to never despise someone whom the Father calls his beloved child. Uh, 1 Peter 4.8 tells us, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So as we seek earnestly to be patient and accommodating with others, we'll also be conscious of our own inability to do so in our own strength. We'll therefore be less quick to pass judgement on others. So step one really is before ourselves and before God in the the privacy of of our hearts, seeking his face, asking him for the same measure of grace towards others that he has shown towards me. Step two then in verse 15 is before the other person privately. Now the aim of speaking privately between just the two, me and the person who's sinned against me, it's not about justice. It's about reconciliation. It's not about winning the arguments. It's not about proving who was in the wrong. It's about winning the relationship. See how the positive outcome is you have gained your brother. And see also it's not about whether your brother repents. It's whether simply he listens to you. I may not resolve the the issue. We may not still agree fully on what caused the incident between us. But we can agree on one thing. That person is my brother or my sister. And so my goal is not to fix things as much as make sure I am still in fellowship and can still say to them, you are my brother or my sister and I am still called to love you. By seeking to deal with the matter privately without talking to anyone first, I avoid bearing false witness against my neighbour. The moment I talk about the matter, about that person behind their back to another, to a third party, what am I doing? I'm actually damaging 
their relationship with that person. I'm tempting them to pass judgment on that brother or sister with only my word to go on. So forgiveness here, and that's the, you know, the goal of this first step is my desire is not for justice for myself, my desire is I want to forgive my brother or sister. It's not about settling the matter, it's not about neutralising the matter or brushing it under the carpet. It's not about thinking that now I can ignore that person so that they don't bother me again. It's about transforming a relationship from one of hostility to one of brotherly, sisterly love. Step two is for four witnesses. Now Jesus here actually invokes the law. Deuteronomy 19.15 says every matter must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now this isn't This isn't a justification for immediately getting others involved in an unresolved issue. It's an assurance that God is present when his word is honoured. That's why later he assures us in verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. If If we are following the guidelines of God's word, we can be assured that he is with us in it. And this step doesn't necessarily mean that the case will then be proven in my favour. See, that's, that's a legalistic way of approaching it. I want justice, I'll bring in witnesses, they'll, they'll take my side and that person will be proven wrong. It's not about that. It might be that these witnesses show my brother or sister their sin more clearly or it might be that their perspective helps me to see things more clearly. They may actually say to me, James, you've actually misunderstood what that person said or did. You actually, you actually don't have a reason to hold anything against them. In that sense, these witnesses are actually mediators. Their goal, again, is reconciliation, not justice. They aren't there to testify against my brother because they saw his sin, they are witnesses to our conversation, to to be uh, people to actually help us towards reconciliation. That's step three. Step four is before the church. Now as we saw earlier, unresolved differences between individuals in the church affects the church, whether we like it or not. And so the church holds a stake in my reconciliation with my brother or sister. If I can't forgive and I leave the church to get away from them, then the church will be affected by my absence. They'll they'll lose someone from the fellowship. If it's the case that they did sin against me, they may likely then do it against others unless they are lovingly disciplined and discipled in the church. So coming before the church is important 
It's not a name and shame exercise. It's not necessarily a Sunday morning public thing where someone stands up and says, this person did this against me. In fact, it's not that. In fact, uh, this step, I believe, could actually be fulfilled just by speaking to the church leadership who will then seek wisdom on how to communicate the issue with the rest of the congregation. What's going on here is it's, it's an open explanation of a rift that's happened. It's, it's owning up, it's, it's acknowledging something that may already have caused ripples of unease within the church community. But it's also a confession of my own weakness. Because I have been unable to effect reconciliation with my brother or sister. Even with the help of two or three witnesses or mediators. And so it's a confession where I say, I need your help. You are my family. I need you to help me, to help my brother as we seek to be reconciled together. So we shouldn't see this uh, in, in that legal sense of escalating the matter to a higher authority. Uh, that's what we do in the secular court system, don't we? When we don't find justice, we go to the next level of court until eventually we end up in the high court. What it is, is it's coming step by step to a wider circle of people for an increased level of pastoral care and concern and help. It's showing that I have the same level of love for the church as Jesus himself does. I'm willing willing to entrust my care to you, my brothers and sisters. Then there's this final step, which might seem to us to be the hardest, the harshest. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This isn't ostracising a person. What it is, is it's simply assuming that that person doesn't really understand the gospel because they're not showing the fruit of that in repentance. We need to remember that these words, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, are recorded, written down by a man we know as Matthew who, when Jesus called him, was a tax collector. It would be a bizarre thing if Matthew included in his Gospel the instruction about treating someone as a tax collector and meant by that, throw them out, have nothing to do with them. That's not what Jesus did to him when he was a tax collector. Jesus himself showed by example what the right approach is for a child of God towards Gentiles and tax collectors. Love, mercy, compassion, mixed with a firmness about sin not shying away from the call to repent and believe, 
but there's still there's still a welcoming, there's still a, a love, there's still a care and concern for that person. The traditional word for that is excommunication, but it's always with the aim of reconciliation. Doesn't mean you're not allowed to come to church, exclusion from meetings. It might mean that they need to step down from a position of leadership that they may have until the matter is resolved, until they embrace the grace of the gospel again. Now each step, as I've mentioned, has been before a growing number of people. But each step has also been before God. And we see that in verses 18 to 20. These are three parallel promises that give us an assurance of both the importance of seeking forgiveness and reconciliation, but also the enabling of God whenever we seek to forgive. And it's interesting to note that each of these three verses uh, have often been taken out of context to say something uh, that they're actually not saying if we look at them in this context. Verse 18 here, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound on heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It emphasises that when forgiveness is communicated and even mediated to us through our brothers and sisters uh, when we live in a gospel-shaped community, that it, it actually works. It's got nothing to do with demons, nothing to do with spiritual warfare. The binding and loosing here is of people, either giving them the freedom to walk in forgiveness by saying, I forgive you, I will no longer hold anything against you. Or, if it escalates to the later steps, it may mean giving them over to the bondage of their hard-hearted refusal to forgive. Verse 19, it's not about a technique for effective prayer, as it's sometimes used, but it's an assurance that the Father stands behind his word. And when his word is spoken and applied, we can be confident that he is active through his word. If both of us are willing to seek reconciliation, even if we don't finally agree on the details or the cause of the problem, the Father will achieve the purpose for which he spoke his word. He will answer our prayer and bring about the reconciliation. But of course we need to be ready to accept the, uh, the resolution that his word brings. It may be personal reconciliation with my brother or sister. It may just be a, a clarification about their spiritual state and their willingness to submit to this message of forgiveness and repentance. Or, and maybe this is the hardest one, it may be me realising that my charge against them was completely unfounded and that I'm the one who needs to repent and ask forgiveness for accusing them of something. Verse 20, again, 
often used as an assurance when prayer meetings are poorly attended. There's only three of us, but that's okay. Jesus is still with us because he says so in this verse. It's not about that. We can see in this context it's about something different. It is that reference to the two or three witnesses that we saw in verse 16. That first step in coming under the embrace of the community in humility, in seeking other people's help. This is an action that honours God. It bears testimony to the Gospel. It pleases Jesus so much that he assures us of his enabling grace and presence. Not just in that step, but in the whole process. So there's the teaching Look at Peter's response. And it's interesting that I think uh, his response reflects our own hearts when we hear that teaching, which is a hard teaching, isn't it? It's probably the question that any of us would have asked if we were there. So we know this teaching is good and right. We know that we must be reconciled to our brothers and sisters We know that if we actually practice that consistently, 90% of our relational problems and our church problems would, would go away. But we want to hold on to our desire for justice for me, for myself. We want to make sure that my rights are not trampled on. So, we ask the question, well, okay, but how many times should I allow this cycle to happen? Before I say enough is enough. Before I say you've done this too many times and I can no longer forgive. And possibly Peter was thinking himself quite gracious in saying seven times. I suspect seven times would be more than enough to stretch the patience of most of us. What does Jesus say? He calls us back to God's sky-high standard of forgiveness. 77 or 70 times 7. In essence, he's saying an unlimited number of times. Just keep forgiving. Never say that they have sinned against me once too often. Never say that their repentance can't be genuine because they've done this before. If love keeps no record of wrongs, then each offence should be treated as if it were the first. Imagine if God said to us, seven strikes and you're out. So Jesus sets this high call of forgiveness into perspective by telling the parable that we, uh, we looked at with the children. This servant owed a debt. It was ridiculously, unimaginably huge. Equivalent to 200,000 years of wages. Or, as I said to the children, about, I said 14 billion, um, it's actually about 16 billion dollars based on the Australian average wage. Uh, Gina Reinhart, the richest person in Australia, is only worth $15 billion only. 
Yet the inability of the servant to pay back, to even make a small dent in this amount, doesn't absolve him of his responsibility. He still needs to be called to account. But then the king cancels his debt. And that's remarkable on two counts. Firstly, he has had compassion on a servant who must have been incredibly unscrupulous or incredibly irresponsible in order to incur such a debt. What on earth was he doing to incur a debt of $16 billion? And the king had mercy on him. But secondly, this king would have suffered great loss himself. That's an amount that was significant even for a king. The kings of the time were incredibly wealthy, but uh, it's estimated that that amount was equivalent of 10 years of income for King Herod, the king at the time. So King Herod obviously was incredibly wealthy to be earning $16 billion over 10 years. But it, it was a huge loss to the king to cancel that debt. By contrast, the debt owned, owed to the servants was a 100 days wage. Equivalent, uh, I've got the figure wrong with the kids, equivalent to about $22,000 not $100,000, but I couldn't find a nugget worth $22,000. So it's not a minuscule amount, but it's still payable. So contrasted with the king's compassion, this servant is unwilling to even consider a repayment plan. So obviously the enormity of the cancellation of his own debt hadn't struck home. Otherwise he would have reflected the king's mercy in his dealings. Now Jesus' conclusion to the story shows us in this parable the king represents God. Full of compassion, the father has forgiven a huge, unpayable debt of sin. We might wonder how our petty sins could rack up such a massive debt. And Landon sums it up when he said, it's even more than that, isn't it? It's not just $14 billion. It's, it's a, an amount we can't even imagine. Because sin isn't just a list of naughty things that we do. It is treason against God himself. The seriousness of of an offence is measured by the value of the person whom we have offended. So that makes our debt against God one that is unpayable except by exclusion forever from his favour. But God has cancelled our debt and by cancelling our debt he has taken onto himself the loss that that debt demands. He did that in sending his son, in the sacrifice of his son, who paid out of his infinite resources, who emptied himself to make payment for our sin.
we were to really comprehend the extent, the full extent of Jesus' sacrifice and the fact that our debt, our debt was so immense that it required such a payment, then our hearts and minds should be transformed. We should be set free to reflect that extreme generosity of our Father to everyone else that we encounter. And that was clearly the king's expectation. He sent the servant out still as a servant, still in his employ. Forgiveness from God means that he not only cancels our debt, he reinstates us into our privileged position as stewards of his kingdom. But an unwillingness to forgive demonstrates a lack of appreciation for the Father's generosity. More than that, it's actually saying to that person, the debt you owe me is more significant than the debt I owed to God. I can be forgiven by God, but you can't be forgiven by me. Essentially, it's setting ourselves up above God implying a moral superiority in ourselves that makes debts against me too big to be forgiven. So in short, it actually reflects an unrepentant attitude, evidence that we're actually rejecting the grace of God, or at the least we're seeing it flippantly as cheap grace. So Jesus' warning at the end of that parable is a solemn one. It's don't receive the grace of God in vain. So Paul says that in this is in uh, one Corinthians uh, two, two Corinthians six. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, in a way that sees it as empty. True receiving of God's forgiveness will be evidenced in a transformed life where we are now people who forgive. And on the day of judgement, our works will be called upon as witness to the genuineness of our confession of faith and our reception of his grace. There are many things that we might point to as the fruits of God's work in our lives, evidence of a a heart that's been transformed by grace and forgiveness is right at the top of that list. So much so, we're told in Jesus' explanation of the parable, that the Father takes our unwillingness to forgive as the sign that we haven't truly received the forgiveness he offers us in Christ. Now note that I said their unwillingness, not inability to forgive. As we saw earlier, Jesus gives us this teaching because he knows how difficult it is. Forgiveness is never easy. Forgiveness can mean great sacrifice. It means great loss to ourselves. And it requires a work of the heart that only the Holy Spirit can bring about. 
it's always difficult to turn our eyes away from ourselves, from our needs, from our assumed rights to the good of another. So when forgiveness is hard, and it will be, when it seems impossible, we need to turn our eyes to Jesus. We need to refocus again on the cross where our impossibly huge debt was cancelled. We need to see that we can never forgive a person directly. Jesus is the mediator. Jesus mediates between us and the Father. So too he is the mediator between us as brothers and sisters. The cross has accomplished our forgiveness before God and it shows us that forgiveness between one another because of the cross. When we see that uh, Christ stands between you and I as brothers and sisters and it's his cross that has atoned for every sin that I commit against you and every sin that you commit against me has been dealt with in the cross. It's when our eyes are fixed on Jesus at those times that we see that Forgiveness, reconciliation is always possible by his grace. Let's pray. Father, it's a sobering thing to hear of the great debt that we owed to you but which you have cancelled freely by grace because of the price that your son paid at the cross. Help us, Father, to never lose sight of the wonder of that, to never lose sight of the thankfulness that you call us to, to never lose sight of the fact that because of your forgiveness we are reconciled to you and our sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. Help us, Father, in our times of weakness, which is often, as we struggle to accept one another, as we struggle to Forgive one another in Christ. But thank you, Father, for the promise of your word. The promise that says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And that as we seek to love, as we seek to forgive, as we seek to repent and to be forgiven, we know that you are there with us, that you are enabling us, that your spirit is guiding us. And that you will, by the power of the Spirit, enable us to love one another truly from the heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.